Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Dr. David Bashevkin about his new book, Synagogue, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought, published by Academic Studies Press in 2019. By its very nature, the ideals of religion entail sin and failure. Judaism has its own language and framework for sin that expresses themselves both legally and philosophically. Both legal questions, circumstances where sin is permissible or mandated, the role of intention and action, as well as philosophical questions, why sin occurs and how does Judaism react to religious crisis, are considered within this volume. This book presents the concept of sin and failure in Jewish thought, weaving together biblical and rabbinic studies to reveal a holistic portrait of the notion of sin and failure within Jewish thought. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. David, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So my name, of course, is David uh, Bashevkin. I grew up in Long Island. I, I, uh, my, most of my academic uh, career was in public policy. I got a PhD from the New School. Uh, I teach in Yeshiva University in their Sai Sim School of Business. Uh, my PhD also deals with failure, but from an organizational perspective, uh, looking at how religious organizations respond to leadership crises involving religious leaders. So I've always been fascinated by by sin and failure and kind of how how do we react to unmet expectations. And if we zoom in on this volume in specific, how did you come to write this book? This book came, I think, where a lot of books come from, and that's a deeply personal place. It was with came from really my own grappling with the notion of sin and failure in my own life, where I felt that my life not necessarily was mired in sin. You know, I'm a I'm a fairly decent Jew, but I felt like a failure. There's a poem that I begin the entire book with that was written by a Pulitzer Prize winning poet named Philip Schultz, who has a collection called The God of Loneliness. And he has a, a poem called Failure. And he, he writes as follows, and I included it in my introduction, to pay for my father's funeral, I borrowed money from people he already owed money to. One called him a nobody. No, I said he was a failure. You can't remember a nobody's name. That's why they're called nobodies. Failures are unforgettable. And I think this notion of oscillating between feeling like a nobody and feeling like a failure, how we grapple with our unmet expectations, is highlighted to anybody who lives within, for sure, a normative religious community, but I think in any community. Everyone lives in places that have these expectations, what it means to be religiously engaged, politically engaged, familially engaged. And very often, the expectations of our ideals can metastasize into feelings of failure. And I think I was in a place in my life when the notion of this book first started bubbling up, where I wanted to grapple with, is there a uniquely Jewish way for how we, appro- how we approach these feelings, these sentiments, and these ideas? 
if we look at the title of the book, and as we've discussed up until this point, Sin and Failure are, are the title, part of the title. And of course, that's what a large part of the book is about. So before we dive in and look at these concepts, how are we defining sin and failure? So the, there is really a twofold issue with choosing the, the title for the book, which not everybody likes. Some people thought it was a, a cute pun. Other people thought it was a little too flippant. I, I just want to note that I spell the, the initial title, synagogue, S-I-N. Uh, the reason why I do that, uh, A, it's a great, you know, I think it's a cute pun, uh, taking off of synagogue spelled with a Y normally, which refers to a, to a Jewish house of worship. But really, for me, the suffix agog means to grow or to lead. This book is about growth or leading somebody through failure, not helping somebody become a bigger failure or a bigger sinner, but helping somebody find personal development and self-growth even through sin. I did want to include sin and failure in Jewish thought because I think they are two different terms. I think the term sin which obviously is a translation. We, we, I have an entire chapter where I talk about the different Hebrew words for sin uh, that are discussed both in the Bible and in the Talmud. But the term sin has a legal component to it. It, it focuses really on what is legally considered, you know, either you could call it a chet in biblical Hebrew or an avera in rabbinic Hebrew. And, and there are legal um, definitions for how we define sin in those contexts. But I wasn't satisfied with just calling it synagogue sin in Jewish thought. Because I think there is a second component, which is the failure, which comes back to the poem that I mentioned earlier. And that's really the feelings of unmet expectations. Feeling like a failure is different than sinning. There are people who sin, who don't feel like a failure, and there are people who feel like a failures and they have never sinned in their entire lives. I, I think the second word failure, which is obviously an English word, and it was not meant in translation, was really a description of a sentiment, a description of living within a community, living with a set of ideals, and feeling that they are unmet, and feeling that I have failed in what I should be doing, in that unrealized self that could have been. So I included both because one, I think, deliberately has a more formal legalistic structure to it, and the other is maybe about how we react when we violate those formal principles. And again, before we look at the content of the book, before we even flip any pages, we're struck with the cover. It's a very nice cover, very interesting cover, and you even describe what is going on in the cover in the book. So I'd love to hear what is the cover and what does it mean to you? So this cover me means the world to me. I found it many years before I published the book or even had a concrete notion that I would write such a book. It's a picture that I licensed from an incredible photographer named Menachem Kahana, who is a photographer for the Associated Press in Israel. He published a photo journal called Haredim, where he spent an entire year immersed in the Israeli Haredi community, what's known by some as the ultra-Orthodox, and he photographed their lives. And I was once flipping through this 
photo collection, which is marvelous if you could get a hold of it. It's a little hard to find. I've only seen it, you know, a little bit pricey, but it is kind of, it's fantastic if you if you can get a copy. Again, it's called Haredim, and I was flipping through it once, and I saw this picture of a Hasidic tish, where kind of you see the the back of a Rebbe. In this picture, it's the Belzer Rebbe. And flanked on both sides are his shamashim, his helpers, who help him set up and run the tish. And then all the way down on rows are all of the Hasidim listening. The reason why I found the picture so moving is because of the little child underneath the table. I think a lot of us in our lives have different roles depending on what room they're in. And to me, this picture in many ways depicted the experience of feeling like you are in the room but not yet at the table. For me, at least, I don't know what the intention of the photographer was. It gave me the impression and the look of that child who I don't know, but at least gave me the impression Somebody who who is yearning for something else, who feels something unmet and unrealized in his life, wants a seat at the table. I think for a lot of us, we have rooms, perhaps in our family life or professional lives, where we feel like the head of the Hasidic Tish, the Rebbe. There are other places where we feel like the helpers flanking him on both sides. We set it up. We run logistics. We send out the emails beforehand. Most of our lives are probably spent much like the Hasidim in this room who are listening. They're the employees. They are the students. They are the people who are listening and consuming the content and involved and engaging in an experience that was prepared for them. But every once in a while, we do have an experience like this child underneath the table who is able to be in the room but not yet have a seat at the table. And it's children, like it's depicted in this picture, which made me realize in the larger sense the sentiment of what it means to experience that unrealized self that I think failure and, and engaging with sin brings us towards. And now we're flipping to actual pages in the book, and we're at the epigraph. And here we have a quote from Tachanun, from one of the prayers within the Jewish prayer book. And it says, In wrath, remember mercy, for he knows our nature. Why did you choose this quote to begin the book? I love that question. I've rarely asked it. Uh, it comes from... The juxtaposition comes from the prayer of Tachanun, which is after the Amidah, the silent prayer. And to me, the juxtaposition of these two biblical verses is saying something quite profound theologically. It begins, Berogiz Rachem Tizkar, which in translation is, In your anger, remember mercy. We are pleading for God's mercy. Why? Ki hu yada yitzrenu, because ultimately, God, you know our inclinations. You know at what is our interiority. And I think this is part of the antinomian tension that exists in any discussion of sin. On the one hand, we are pleading out to God, which in and, in and of itself is an act of responsibility. We're saying, God, please give me mercy as an independent entity for the things that I have not yet realized, for the transgressions that I have had. Do not be angry. The second part, Kihu Yada Yisrenu, because you know our inclination, kind of touches upon this divine foreknowledge and maybe even 
this notion that God himself can can in some ways be held responsible for our failures. It is the question and touches upon the question whether failure in Jewish theology is a feature of the system or a bug of the system. And I think that's deliberately ambiguous in Jewish thought. I think part of the process of teshuva or as poorly translated repentance, more properly translated as a return to self, I think the notion of teshuva really touches upon this journey through personal responsibility that ultimately ultimately leads to a partnership with God in your very narrative that includes your failures, where even your difficulties, even your transitions, so to speak, can be attributed as positive acts if through your act of radical responsibility and transformation, it brings you closer. I should say as well that I know this specific quote has resonance for you because you do have a Hebrew book, a, a safer, a Jewish religious book called Baroga's Rechemti's Core. So this seems to have a special place in your in your heart and mind. Yes, um, the, the Hebrew book, again, Baroga's Rachem Tizkor, is available for free online if you go to hebrewbooks.org. I would call it a, a first cousin or maybe even a sibling to this book. There's a lot in this book that appears in Hebrew, but there's a lot that does not, and there's a lot in the Hebrew book uh, that doesn't appear here. There's kind of an overlap. You know, when you write in different languages, the same idea. There are a lot of structural changes you have to make. There are a lot of kind of the intricacies that you're able to discuss in English don't always translate well to Hebrew. And some of the more rabbinic ideas about grappling with passages in Talmud don't necessarily translate well to English. Uh, so they, they kind of complement one another. Once we get past the epigraph, we've got the, the foreword. And the foreword is written by Professor Shal Magid, a, a great thinker, someone who's written a lot about Hasidic thinkers and, 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 and beyond. And I'm curious why choose him for the foreword. And also just in general, beyond the foreword, you quote him a number of times, a number of, of his research projects and, and books that he's written. So how has he influenced your thinking about sin and failure? Shaul Magid is a uh, is a friend. He is a teacher. Uh, he's somebody who uh, I always enjoy speaking with. Has a very special soul, and in many ways, his own journey and his own life was through the 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 pathways and the difficulties that I describe in this book uh, that he's written about on his own. It's a life of transformation. It's a life in flux. The reason why I specifically asked Shaul Magid is because I felt a, a real sense of indebtedness to him because a lot of the scholarly approach to these issues was filtered through the Hasidic school of Ishbitz, which I discuss at length in the book. Ishbitz was a school of Hasidus that began in 1839 and 1840 and really grappled with the notion of personal autonomy, divine foreknowledge, antinomianism, what it means to sin in the modern world, what it means to fashion yourself in the modern world. And the first person who I ever saw write about Ishbitz was Shaul Magid in his book, Hasidism on the Margin, which was, I believe, published by Indiana University Press. And, you know, we differ on a lot of issues, but... He was a guide of sorts. He, he held my scholarly hand through this process, 
And I really appreciated all of his guidance and advice and the way that he reframed my thinking. So it was really a privilege uh, to have him write the foreword. The book is divided into three different sections. And the first section is the nature of sin. And you mentioned before that if we look at the Bible, we look at the Talmud, there are different terms, certainly, for sin. How have you seen, through your research, the notion of sin, as well as the terms for sin, develop from the rabbinic from the biblical period to the rabbinical period and on? The notion of sin definitely has evolved. I think any time that you do a plain reading of the Talmud, you're going to get – I'm sorry. Any time that you do a plain reading of the Bible, you're going to get a very different impression than – what you would necessarily see uh, filtered through the world of Talmud and later case studies. For me, it was important to provide a path to trace this evolution. I think one very basic difference that you find that kind of illuminates this is in the very words for sin and failure. In the Bible, the most common words we see for sin and failure are chet, uh, we have the word avon, we have the word pesha. Each of these Hebrew words has a different connotation. What I always found fascinating is that, that wor- the word for sin changes in rabbinic U- Judaism, and we use the word avera, which means to transgress. And it's, it's not even like we had a shortage of words. We had a whole bunch of words. So why invent a new one? Why, why go someplace else? So I, I present two ideas, but I think one of them really highlights it, which is the idea that with the development of the oral law and kind of the solidification of what the boundaries are in Jewish life, then the notion of transgressing those values, the notion of sin as transgression of boundary became more real. And many other elements of sin, perhaps our relationship with God and how it affects that, perhaps our relationship with the uh, sacrificial component of sin as described in the Talmud, uh, in the Bible, uh, became a little more difficult to apprehend. So the very name of it changed. And what I think is important throughout the book is to provide the conceptual underpinnings for what sin is and then build off of that and explain how did later Talmudic ideas and rabbinic ideas grapple with those foundational concepts, and then how in the lived lives of Jewish history, how did they grapple with these notions of sin and failure? When I think, I think when other people think about sin and the nature of sin and a notion of sin, they go to original sin. That's something that that people think about. They think about it within a Western context, within a Christian context, How much does that appear within Jewish sources? To what degree is that a purely Christian idea, or is there a counterpart within Judaism? The notion of original sin, which is obviously a a English term, uh, definitely does appear in Jewish contexts. Uh, The way we describe it would be Chet Adam Harisho, and it is a story that derives from the Bible. So obviously uh, that story appearing in our Bible and its later effects, which is discussed in the Talmud, that it had enduring effects on humanity, 
is something uh, that exists within Jewish ideas. Th- there are two very important uh, differences, crucial differences. Th- the first is is rather technical and doesn't even bear mentioning, but I'll do so anyway, just so nobody gets confused. Obviously, the doctrine of original sin as developed by uh, Augustine and later Christian scholars, you know, centered the importance of salvation through Jesus as the only way to overcome this. Now, obviously, that does not exist uh, in Jewish ideas, and I think that the later centering of this doctrine in Christianity isn't quite as centered uh, in, in in Jewish thought, and certainly the notion of salvation through Jesus uh, does not appear in traditional. Uh, Jewish sources. The the second distinction is even more important, and that really has to do with the foundational approach to this story. When you read the story of, we could call it Chet Adam Harishon, the story of Adam eating from the tree of good and the tree of knowledge, I'm sorry, the tree of the knowledge of, of right and wrong, of good and evil, You'll notice it appears in the third chapter of Genesis. If you open up a Bible and you start reading the first three chapters of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis tells the story of the first six days of creation and ends with the creation of man. The second chapter begins with the introduction of Shabbos, uh, which is when God rested on the seventh day. And then afterwards, uh, we kind of repeat the story of the creation of man. And then finally, in the third chapter, we have the story of Adam eating from the tree of good and knowledge. Uh, There are a lot of really important questions you could ask on this story. You could ask, how could Adam have sinned? You could try to ask, what was the sin? You could ask, why did Adam sin? So, you know... It was just created. What, what was the motivation? I think the most foundational question, particularly when parsing the difference between Judaism and Christianity, is not what was the sin, it is not how did he sin, it is not why did he sin, but rather it is when did he sin. And this returns us back to the foundational ambiguity that I began with when you asked me about that introductory idea from Tachanon, Barog Rachim Tizkor Kihu Yad Yitzreinu. When did Adam sin? A plain reading of the Torah undoubtedly gives you the impression that Adam's sin was following the seven days of creation. God created a perfect world, rested on the seventh day. He created man and said man was very good, tov ma'od, and then rested on Shabbos. And then the world kind of creation went on its own and man corrupted that perfect world. That is the Christian approach to this story. And the dating of this story, which has very important implications for how you view perfection and failure. Failure is a bug of the creation story. There was a perfect creation and man corrupted that perfection. If we are to reclaim that perfection, we have to look towards our past. We have to look towards some other means. That is not the way that the story and the dating is retold in the Talmud. The Talmud deliberately dates the story of Adam eating from the tree of knowledge to be on the sixth day of creation, on that first Friday of creation, and then went into Shabbos. Why did the Talmud do this? The Talmud, I believe, did this because there is a perspective where failure is not just a 
bug of the system, but it is a feature of the system. The world was not created perfect, and all ideas of perfection are always future-focused, not past-oriented. And this, I believe, is an idea that was developed later on in Lurianic Kabbalah, was developed by many other Jewish scholars, but this notion that failure and imperfection was a part of creation itself and it is man's responsibility to effectuate that change in this world as opposed to the christian notion where creation was perfect and man corrupted that it's very interesting i was once invited to speak at a conference and i have a paper coming out hopefully as part of a collection being published by de Gruyter, a little bit more scholarly than my own book uh, you know, I've written a little bit more uh, academic. You know, my book uh, goes back and forth between a playfulness and and scholarship, but this is really button up serious. And I was presenting at this conference. It was a a inter religious conference, scholars, for Christian scholars, Islamic co- scholars. And I told them this idea. I said, in, in Judaism, the sin of Adam was deliberately dated as a part of creation. A- a- and there was an audible gasp. I mean, scholars did not believe me. They said, that is impossible. That contradicts a plain r- reading of the Bible. And he pointed to a verse. He said, so why did God say that on the end of the sixth day, that he created man and man was very good. Th- th- that's describing exactly what happened in the aftermath of the sin. How could you call that very good? And I thought it was fascinating because in the Midrash of r- rabbinic literature, that's precisely where the rabbis look and point where they say very good. That refers to the creation of the evil inclination, meaning it was this added very good, that subjectivity that only appears in the sixth day that actually was a wink or a subtle inference to the reader, letting you know that something changed on the sixth day. It is not just the existence of man, but the existence of the capacity for failure, which was a part of creation. And this difference between Judaism and Christianity on this issue, I think is so fundamental. I would just say one important point that I believe that both notions exist within Judaism, meaning I think the ambiguity is deliberate. I think Judaism and the Talmud deliberately dates it as a part of creation, but there is theological weight and implications to a plain reading of the text. It is the enduring ambiguity of whether our lives are solely the product of God's divine foreknowledge or is there room for our own free will and choice, that I believe that ambiguity is circling around and I think is an enduring theme in any discussion of sin and failure. In the world of Jewish thought and law, action takes center stage. What we do is of the utmost importance. However, there's another side of the coin, intention. How does one's intention play into sin and its definition? There, in in secular law, there is a notion of how intention and sin 
react with one another. Generally, in Jewish law, we do not punish people just for thought crimes. The notion of thought crimes only seems to exist primarily as it relates to thoughts of idolatry, but intention does have an important place to play when it comes to actually uh, sinning. It changes the very nature of the sin, its severity, and how it is dealt with in the court system. Whether something is deliberate or accidental really changes the very nature of your responsibility. This is probably the most technical chapter in the entire book, but I thought it was important to place in here because I think very often we we divide up into you know either or you know the, the road to hell is paved by good intentions we dismiss the importance of intention on the other side um there are people who highlight that the only thing that really matters is is what you were thinking and what you were trying for and i think in the jewish framework and the way that we decide culpability and responsibility for sin there's something very beautiful taking place there's this dance in the way that we incorporate both the intention and the action to really deal with the totality of the lived human experience. Another thing that you mentioned before is free will and coping with free will, thinking about how to do things for ourselves, by ourselves, without any, any anything imposing upon us, that we have the free will to do what we want to do, even if it will lead to sin. So how exactly does free will play into sin? Is it a necessary component of sin? Are there conceptions in which we don't have free will and, and yet we still are led to sin? What, what is the role of free will within the idea of sin? The question of free will kind of lurks in the underbelly of a lot of historical um, discussions, especially in Jewish history, of sin and failure. I mean, obviously, to be held responsible for something, to be the author of something, requires an act of free will. We're not going to hold somebody responsible for something that is out of their control. On the flip side, in Jewish thought, we have this other idea, which is divine foreknowledge, what is called sometimes... Yidea, which is God's divine foreknowledge of the world. This is a contradiction that Maimonides already deals with in the fifth chapter in the fifth law of, of in Hilchus Tshuva, the laws of repentance, where Maimonides tries to figure out how these two ideas can square together. I think different schools of Jewish thought have squared it differently, which has led to different approaches to sin and failure itself. On the one hand, if you emphasize, and I believe that these two schools of thought, kind of the emphasis on free will versus the emphasis of divine foreknowledge, is one of the most foundational issues, not just in Jewish theology, but in the entire world. I think there are implications that this debate has for economic thought and for public policy. I begin my public policy course with speaking about these ideas because I think the way that we approach society, much like Adam Smith. There's a fantastic book by Benjamin Friedman called Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which talks about the world that Adam Smith emerged from when he was developing ideas of economics really came from these stories, these biblical stories about the tree of knowledge and the nature of humanity and trying to figure out how we could coordinate societies together. And broadly speaking, I think there's a spectrum where on one side, 
there are people who emphasize this world of Bechira, of free will. They emphasize this notion that we are responsible for our actions, and they contend in other ways for how we account for God's divine foreknowledge. But they live in a world where essentially we are responsible for our actions, which which has some great benefits. There is a sense of agency. There's a sense of responsibility in the world that we are living. Uh, the downside is that sometimes you live in a world where things happen that you don't necessarily have that safety net of knowing, so to speak, that, that this is part of some divine plan. On the other end of the spectrum is the world of divine foreknowledge. And that world, which is the world that I, I think is being described where failure is a part of the system, is also an act of creation. In that world, Everything is subsumed under the divine plan, even your failure, even your sins. There's something very comforting about that, of course, to know that when we don't meet our expectations, to know that we, when we confront difficulty, we are part of some divine universe and divine narrative unfolding is a deeply comforting idea that has obvious roots in classical rabbinic sources. The difficulty that comes out of this is where does that leave your agency? Why not sin in order to be an expression of God's divine foreknowledge? Why not go out and uh, visit prostitutes and, and be licentious and promiscuous? And that too is an expression of God's divine foreknowledge. A lot of the limits of the emphasis of God's divine foreknowledge of this kind of divinity being manifest expressly in the world definitely came to the fore in the uh, enduring saga of Shabtai Tzvi and his later followers. Shabtai Tzvi, again, scholars have debated you know, how to understand and the frame with which we can approach this story. But one frame to approach the story is emphasizing the antinomian components, which means the, the deliberate transgression of the law as an act of religious ritual, was coming from this idea of this unfolding divine narrative that subsumed even our transgressions, that everything was a part of the divine narrative. Now, obviously, uh, that is not that expression is not a part of the normative uh, traditional world. He was not accepted, uh, though initially he was, uh, by the traditional community. But the grain, the um, the continuing shadow of those ideas, hovers over a lot of discussions within Jewish thought and Jewish life, and I think it casts a fairly long and serious shadow over discussions on sin and failure. Within the book, there's a lot of key figures, key ideas, key movements, which are, are discussed. And one of those key figures that you that you mentioned that you speak a lot about is Rav Tzadik of Lublin. How did your love affair with him begin? I was introduced to Rav Tzadok when I was in 12th grade. Rav Tzadok was a student of the Rebbe of Izhbitz, who I mentioned earlier, who had fairly radical and revolutionary ideas about Jewish thought. And his Hasidic court began in 1839-1840. And I was introduced to Rav Tzadok in 12th grade. Uh, we had something called Mishmar, which was after school on Thursday nights, we would order Chinese food. I remember I was eating a beef and broccoli dish. 
uh, from Waktov, which was the local Chinese store. And we had an extra learning period that was on Thursday nights. And it was on that Thursday night uh, where we had a guest speaker who was doing a series on Rav Tzadok. And his name was Rav Moshe Weinberger, uh, who's a, uh, a Rebbe who lives in Woodmere. And I didn't uh, pray in his synagogue. I don't know that I really heard all that much from him beforehand. And he opened up with the words of Reb Tzadok in his first Hasidic work, the first work of Hasidus that was published by Reb Tzadok. Uh, he wasn't raised Hasidish. He became Hasidish later on in life. And he opened up with the words, Keshem she'adam tzarech lahamen b'hakadosh baruch hu kach tzarech achar kach lahamen ba'atzmo. Which I'll translate, of course, just as a person needs to believe in God, so to afterwards they need to believe in themselves. And I was sitting there as a 12th grader, and like many kids in high school, I had anxiety, I was nervous, and religion for me was something that was something I was reaching towards but never grasping. And I felt that my own sense of self, my own character, my own story was a roadblock was a divider between me and my religious life. There was an, a, a divide between my belief in myself and my belief in God. And what Reb Tzadok did in many ways was allowed for a, a modern religious conception that is mediated and centered through your own self-understanding and self-knowledge and self-development. It's a thoroughly modern approach to, to, to Jewish thought. It welds together uh, Hasidic ideas about psychology and self uh, with the Lithuanian Talmudic ideas that he was raised with. Reb Tzadok was a unique fusion that built bridges in Jewish thought, and one of the things that Reb Tzadok contends with a great deal because he centers self and allows for a religiosity that is mediated through self Reb Tzadik deals with the notion of sin and failure a great deal. It occupied uh, a great deal of his own self-conception and his own you know, autobiography and story and his own difficulties. And, and Reb Tzadik really provides a pathway, though his works are very difficult to translate into English. Uh, the ideas, the underlying whispers of his thought are really on every page of the works that I publish. Section two of the book is entitled Case Studies in Sin and Failure. You've been open in your writings and e even before when you were, when you were speaking um, at the beginning of the interview about failures that you yourself have had in your, in your, in your life. Um, I want to speak about, and I'd love to hear from you, how the research for this book has impacted you on a personal front. That's a profound question that I that I, I, I probably never explicitly considered deeply. I think that I think that one of the foundational ideas, and we've touched upon it in a lot of ways by discussing it in my book, is the struggle of children of rabbis. My, my father was not a rabbi. Uh, my father was not a rabbi. Uh, he was an oncologist. Uh, but I do have a discussion about the notion of growing up in a home of prominence and the effect that that has on children. I'm not going to outline the exact connection. You could look at the book to understand how it all relates and connects to it. But in that chapter, I, I really discuss a great deal on the blessings of the Kohanim, 
of what's known as Birchas Kohanim, the blessings of the Kohanim. And there's something very interesting about that blessing. It's the blessing that we begin when we first make our blessing on the Torah. It's the part of the Torah that we recite after making that initial blessing on the Torah. And I think the reason is, is because the blessing of the Kohanim too often is thought of as a blessing that the you know priests and people who have the lineage of priests, what's known in Hebrew as the Kohanim, uh, it's something that they bestow onto the Jewish people, and we have this very passive role in that blessing. But, but that's actually not the case, neither legally or uh, in Jewish thought. What we're really doing is we are making a prayer of sorts that we should be able to approach our religious lives and feel blessed. And I think that the opportunity of writing a book on failure, of taking my own life story and transforming it and putting it to the page and the conceptual underpinnings that I was grappling with allowed me to look at my own religious learn journey, not as an aberration, not as something that was undermining or coercive or suffocating or oppressive, but something that even throughout I could find blessing and that I feel deeply blessed in my religious life and in my religious community. And I think being able to write about these ideas and surface a lot of the concepts of sin and failure, uh, for me, allowed me to have a more holistic and blessed feeling uh, in my own religious life. In the second section, you quote Abraham Lincoln in the very beginning of, of chapter seven, you quote Stephen Dubner, and throughout the book, you quote a number of sources beyond just the Bible and the Talmud, classic rabbinic sources. What, how do you use these sources? How do they help you understand Jewish texts? Are you using them just to understand the text or to provide some sort of contrast or somewhere in between or both? What a, what a, what a, what a great question that I really, really appreciate. You miss some of the, the more pop culture references are probably buried in the footnotes I've got the great Netflix show, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, buried in a footnote there. Well, I, I don't limit myself exclusively to Talmudic sources uh, for two reasons. One is really uh, about the audience and more technical, and one is really about what I am trying to do in all of my writings and anything that I produce for the public. The first reason is, again, very technical. I think the same way that when you write in English, you have to write in English that your audience can appreciate and consume. You want uh, you want to include references and quotes that will allow your audience to kind of get through some of the more technical uh, discussions. It is an appreciation of the language and the place that my audience emerges from, and, and it's the it's the world that I live in. I think there's something much more essential that I'm trying to do. And that is, what I am trying to do is not just to have an abstract, clarified, uh, conceptual discussion, an abstract discussion about sin and failure or any other Jewish concept in any other article or conversation that I may have. I think what occupies most of my thought, what occupies most of my ideas is not a question of conceptualization, but it's really a question of phenomenology. What what does Judaism feel like? What does the experience feel like? What does it feel like 
to have Sukkot? What does it feel like to have Shabbos? And sometimes, what does it feel like to fail? What does it feel like to, to sin? When we focus on the phenomenon, on the phenomenology of Jewish concepts, it's something that is deliberately mediated through self. It is something that encompasses the entire world and the entire moment that we are in. I, I don't know what it felt like to observe Shabbos 400 years ago, but I do know what it feels like now uh, for myself and for people around me. And I can write about that. I can write about what it feels like to sin. And it's wedding the phenom- the phenomenology of Jewish life and Jewish thought with the conceptual underpinnings of Jewish thought that is everything that I am trying to do uh, in this book and in all of my writings. And in order to do so, you can't just discuss abstract ideas that are limited to Talmud and the Bible. You need to paint on a wider canvas, a canvas that includes people's experiences, that includes quotes, that include that include ideas and feelings that emerge from the contemporary moment. And that is a big part of what I do because I am trying to address the world from which I, and I believe my readers, emerge from. Very, very profound. I like that. And I, I did see the footnote to Kimmy Schmidt, so I need to go back to that episode to, to see how that relates to some of these philosophical problems that we're tackling here. If we look beyond the popular culture references and, and go back to the Bible, one of the chapters they have in the book discusses the prophet of Jonah, the prophet of Jonah. And he's the quintessential, I don't know if we'd say quintessential sinner, but certainly someone who runs away from God and tries to not do what he's supposed to do, that is to prophesy to the city of Nineveh. How does the story of Jonah and the character of Jonah, how does he help us understand sin and failure? I think that any conversation about sin and failure needs to begin with what is motivating you to religious life in the first place. If sin and failure is the disintegration of religious life, the deterioration, the erosion of religious expectation and ideals, we need to understand what brings people into these rooms, into these commitments, what makes them chase these ideals in the first place. And I believe in the story of Yonah, which I which I discuss more in depth in that chapter, really highlights the paradigm of the two primary motivations that bring people into religious life, that if they are unmet, leave people feeling bereft and leave people feeling like failures. On the one hand, there are people who come to religious life in search of truth because of they, they believe in theological truths. They believe that uh, you know the doctrines of the Torah and development of the oral law and you know and, and, and what religion is preserving is a true idea and they are after that truth. There are other people who are not so much after truth, and obviously this is a spectrum, but they're after comfort. They enjoy the comforts of community. They enjoy the comforts of religious life. They may enjoy maybe the cultural underpinnings. They show up to shul and they get uh, some chalant and kugel, and they enjoy these things. They find them culturally comforting. They find them communally comforting. I think the story of Yonah is somebody who came into the room in search of truth, but became deeply disappointed when he became surrounded and realized that he was surrounded by people who are really only here for comfort. And I think his entire dialogue with God is God 
showing Yona and giving Yona that empathy and sensitivity to appreciate that even religious life that is motivated from comfort can be deeply significant, deeply powerful, and deeply substantive. That those who are motivated exclusively by truth should not be quite so dismissive of the world of comfort. And that there is theological truth that can be found, however hidden, however obscurely, in the world of comfort as well. Section three of the book is entitled Responses to Sin and Failure, and this is section three of three. If we want to look at a practical level, I'll be honest here that we're in the month of Elul uh, on the Jewish calendar, and we're recording this interview September 12th, and it will be out in not too long. And many Jewish people are thinking at a very practical level, how do we respond to sin? How do we respond to failure? How do we deal with these things practically in our lives? So from this section of the book or beyond, what are some practical tools and practical mindset switches or ideas that we can bring to ourselves and bring to our lives in order to, to handle these types of situations? It's obviously a very big question, and I think a lot of them we, we've touched upon. I think if there's one idea that I would probably service and center is the notion of forgiveness. The notion of forgiveness in Hebrew comes from the word mechila. Which is, a, which is a bit of a strange word. It doesn't appear in the Torah. It's not a biblical word, uh, though some uh, Bible scholars want, you know, some, some rabbinic sources try to find the source for it in the Torah. Uh, but it is a later word. It's an invented word. We don't quite know exactly where it came from. And I think uh, an idea that I heard from a, a friend and a, real, a really great scholar of the Hebrew language named Mitchell First uh, who has some wonderful books of his own, I, I, I heard something really beautiful and really remarkable from him, where the word mechila in Hebrew, which means forgiveness, comes from the root word of halal, which means to create a space. Mechila means to create space for another. A lot of times when we're in a difficulty with somebody else, we're in a fight with a parent, with a loved one, with somebody who disappointed us, a lot of times what we're really grappling with is the constriction that we don't want have room in our lives for others. There's no space in our lives for other people who disappoint us. And sometimes it's easier to retreat to the smallness of our own worlds to protect ourselves from disappointment, from to protect us from difficulty, to protect us from any sense of failure. We can even retreat from ourselves where we don't want ourselves to have any disappointment and we can retreat from religious worlds. And I believe that in the Jewish practice of mechila, of asking for forgiveness, what we're really asking, we're inviting people and expanding our very sense of self that there is room in my life for you. There is room in, in my life for other. There is room in my life for myself, and even having expectations and ideals that may not always be met, there is room in my life for that as well. The act of mechila as the act of creating space for yourself and others, I think is deeply profound and powerful. And I think very often we feel crushed under the constriction and suffocation of not allowing others into our worlds and the more that we're able to be mochel ourselves and others in creating space 
for others in our lives, I think we could lead broader and more expansive and more emotionally healthy religious lives. You began your life as David Beshefkin, and you became a rabbi. You got rabbinic ordination. And subsequent to the book, as you mentioned before, you got a PhD, which is related in some ways to the topics that we've discussed and topics that you discuss in your book. It's been three years since the book's been written, and you've grown as a person. You've done further research on related topics. If you were to write the book now or expand the book, change the book, edit it, is there anything that you'd change or add yeah, there, there are some things that I would change and, and add. I, I think I've been teaching a course on sin and failure for a very long time, and I think that I would include within the book, it was a suggestion that my friend Shimon Steinmetz made when I gave him a manuscript. I, I think I would include more first-person testimonials about how people grapple and deal with sin and failure, how it makes them feel, and, and maybe disclose and share a little bit more of my own journey. Um, I'm hoping, you know, there'll be other books and other places to write. I'm hoping that there's a chance to um, to share that as well. But I think my own subjective experience uh, of dealing with sin and failure and the people and the students that have invited me into their lives would have been a, a noble addition uh, to this book. And hopefully one day we'll have it. If we think about Jewish leaders, they are human, and they do fail, and, and they can sin. And that could be contrasted with other religions, perhaps, certain notions of papal infallibility or other notions in which leaders can't fail. How does that tie in to your thinking and what you've written in the book? That is to say, can leaders fail? How do they fail? And, and what are we to make of that as, as people who are, who are following them? Leaders can definitely fail. Uh, that 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 we don't even need to uh, to hem and haw over. You just have to open up and, and look around at the world. We see failed leaders in every aspect and every place in the world. Of course, they can. But what what it really leads is so. What is the model of leader? There's a very strange Talmudic passage, which says that our leaders should be like angels. And it always bothered me because the Talmud usually says that the Torah was not given to angels. When Moshe went up to Sinai, the angels wanted to keep the Torah to themselves. And God said the Torah was not given to angels. This is for human beings who grapple with, with sin and difficulty. So why all of a sudden when we talk about the model of rabbinic leadership – of education, do we compare them to angels at this point when the Torah itself was not designed uh, for people living angelic lives? And I think it means something very differently in that context. And that is the word malach, which is the Hebrew word for angel, can also mean an agent, a faithful agent. I think we need leaders who are trustworthy, who are who are driven and motivated, not from their own self-aggrandizement, not from how many followers they can amass and how much influence they can uh, collect. But we need, we need person-student-centric leaders. We need leaders who are willing to foster and cultivate an independent religious life where their students become lifelong learners, but not necessarily attached to the specific leader who began them on their journey, which is always a, a tough thing for, 
for leaders. I, I, I'm a, I'm a Jewish educator. I have students in my classroom. I notice, you know, when, when I'm invited and included in their, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and included in their life. And I not, I, sometimes I'm forgotten and that could be painful. And there's one approach, which is much easier, which is to kind of grasp very tightly and ensure that they don't go too far. They always stay under your influence. There's another way of looking at it, which I think is very beautiful, where you watch students move on and now they have other teachers and other other ways that are built upon what they learned in your classrooms from your ideas. And they're leading healthy, independent religious lives. That's what it means, I think, to have a leader who's an angel. It's a leader who is not self-interested, but other-interested, other-motivated. And their number one priority is the lifelong, independent success of their students. Thank you. As we wind down, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to add in? That's a tough question. You are very, very thorough. I was going to ask you, you make a gesture sometimes when you're asking me a question, and I'm not sure if that's because you didn't like my answer or that's just how you preface the next question. But um, no, I think you you were incredibly thorough, and it was really a joy to speak with you today. Same here. I'll ask you the, the famous New Books Network question. What are you working on next? Oh, thank you so much. I uh, There are two things that I'm involved in that I'm incredibly proud of. One is I have a podcast called 1840. It's more than a podcast. You can look at 1840.org, 18forty.org, where every month we have different podcasts, essays, interviews, recommended readings on different central topics in Jewish thought, which I think is very important and very foundational. And secondly, uh, I, I, I am studying the Dafyomi cycle, uh, and at the end of every tractate that's finished with Dafyomi, I share a thematic essay on each tractate that's published on a tablet magazine. Uh, so if you're interested in Talmud, or even not interested in Talmud, but curious about kind of the underlying themes uh, with in the great project that is the Talmud, uh, that's something that I am working on now and, and very proud of. Good stuff. I hope our listeners will check that out as well. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate all your time. We've been talking to Rabbi Dr. David Boshevkin, author of Synagogue, published in 2019 by Academic Studies Press. Happy reading, my friends.